0: That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today.
1: The following podcast contains explicit language. So my guest this week is Bob Reich, who is just a really fascinating guy and also is one of the interviews you all have been asking for since we began He went to school with Hillary Clinton, where they were in student government together. And they actually went, as you'll hear in this podcast, they went out on a date, which is something I did not know, but but it's a really wonderful story that he talks about here. Um, He was in a Rhodes Scholar with Bill Clinton, where they became close. I really urge you to read his memoir, Locked in the Cabinet, where he talks about the first time he met Bill Clinton. And it's such an amazing portrait of Clinton's almost pathological sociability and friendliness. It's really very funny, particularly because it all happens while Reich is dry heaving from seasickness. After that, he became a very influential economic thinker and academic. Clinton tapped him to manage his economic transition team when he won the presidency. Then he made Reich secretary of labor. After that, Reich co-founded the American Prospect, which is really important in my life because that gave me my first job in journalism. And we talk a bit about that magazine, about the effect it had on the media, about how to do policy journalism well in general. But what's really interesting right now about Reich is that despite his long relationship with the Clintons, he's become maybe the most influential and through his words and through his videos, widely read and viewed supporter of Bernie Sanders. This has been a big deal. His videos on Facebook have racked up at this point about 80 million views. And he's really made the case for Sanders, particularly around inequality and, and issues of power, I think more eloquently and more persuasively than anyone else out there. This has already been a fairly long intro, but it's it's testament to just how much Rice has done that I've not gotten here to his run for governor of Massachusetts or his many books or the documentary he made or the endless list of awards you could find on his Wikipedia page. He's lived a, a very interesting life. It's a very fun conversation. He's a, as you'll hear, an incredible storyteller and really, really fast thinker on his feet. Just a lot of fun to talk to. I hope you enjoy it. But before you get to enjoy it, I have three requests for you. The three requests are to share, to email and to listen. The share request is to go and share this podcast if you're enjoying it. Put it on Facebook. Put it on Twitter, on Snapchat, on WhatsApp, on Peach, if you can do that on Peach. It means a lot to me, and it's also how the podcast grows. Number two is to email me at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Kleinshow at Vox.com. Send me your feedback on the episode. Give me requests for people you'd like to see on the podcast. A lot of our guests come directly from people you suggest, so I really do read those personally. I really do appreciate them. And finally... I have another podcast with my colleagues from Vox, Matthew Iglesias and Sarah Cliff about policy. It is called The Weeds. You can also download it wherever fine podcasts are downloaded. And you should, if you're enjoying this, also be listening, hopefully, to that. All right. All that said, here's Bob Reich. Well, seeing a man like you who has built the Facebook video following you've built makes me optimistic about new platforms and their ability to spread ideas. Well, that's what it's all
2: about.
3: It really is (laughs) about educating the public.
1: Oh, another thing I've been doing today... Has been rereading my copy of Locked in the Cabinet. Wow,
2: a great book! I have not looked at that book in so many years. I think by far the finest cabinet memoir from the Clinton administration.
3: I don't think that's
2: a high compliment. There is no competition. I don't believe.
1: (laughs) So something that I had forgotten reading that book, I had always remembered this story, and it's an amazing story, and you tell it beautifully in the book. Of Bill Clinton on your boat trip to Oxford, coming down and trying to give you chicken soup and refusing to leave your room, even though you were sick. Uh, I had not known that you had actually met Hillary Clinton first. Yes,
3: Hillary, she was at Wellesley as a freshman. I was a sophomore at Dartmouth. She was president of her freshman class. I was president of my sophomore class. And I suggested a presidential summit which was a fancy way of arranging a date. I don't think she thought of it as a date. I don't think I did either, but we, we did go out to a movie. We saw Antonioni's blow-up, as I recall, and years later, I mean, in 2008, I got a, a call from a reporter from the New York Times saying that he had come across a, a group of her letters from when she was an undergraduate and she mentions having gone out on a date with me. And the reporter in 2008 said, is there anything that you can tell me about that date that might shed light on how she would perform as a president? Which I think in my entire career is the stupidest question ever asked <laughs> me by a reporter. And I answered him with tongue firmly planted inside my cheek, saying, well, she wanted an inordinate amount of butter on her popcorn. And then there was silence on the other end of the phone. I thought he had just hung up. It was such an absurd answer and such an absurd question. But it turned out, I said, are you still there? He said, yes, yes, I'm, I'm just writing this down. The,
1: the inside is deep that I want to almost talk about your your college game though for a minute that you planned a presidential summit that was a movie date is a very
3: a very kind of smooth transition there it was <laughs> it was I was anything but smooth i <laughs> i think that We probably talked about student government and educational reform. I remember both of us were interested in experimental colleges. Some of us at Dartmouth launched the Dartmouth Experimental College just around then. And as an afterthought, we went on to the Nugget Theater in Hanover, New Hampshire, which is the only place you could go if you wanted to see a movie, let alone have a date. I mean, it wasn't really a date. But that's all. This is the mist of ages past this is 1965 Ezra this is probably before anybody you know was even a twinkle in anybody else's eye sure
2: i didn't even realize america was a country in 1965 no, it wasn't. It was, it was a colony still then. <laughs> and and uh, we had a lot of foreign policy problems with Britain. Tell me a little bit about something you said
1: there that, that may feel like a digression to you, but is, is interesting to me. Is Tell me a little bit about those educational issues at that moment. You talked about being involved in a group that began an experimental college at, at Dartmouth.
3: What was experimental about it? We thought that the best way of organizing education was to give people the opportunity to teach and to learn what they wanted to and it was essentially a kind of a glorified bulletin board where anybody could say look I'm I'm interested in learning more about this or I'm interested in teaching I know a lot about this other thing and I'm interested in teaching it and then some other people could and it was ways pre computer days ways people could actually come together and we had we ended up with about 40 courses open to anybody in the community any students For at least a couple of years, it really went like gangbusters. And it was a different philosophy of education. You know, we were caught up in the feeling in the 1960s that institutions could be fundamentally reformed to serve their inherent purpose. And there was embedded there a a distrust or at least a suspicion of hierarchies.
1: And when you began that I mean it's so fascinating to hear you describe it that way because it does sound a lot like things that happened on the internet later, right It sounds a lot in some ways like reddit. There is this capacity in, in forums and other places to go and learn about whatever you'd like to learn about and teach about whatever you'd like to teach about you're at Berkeley now, which is a, a, a university that I, I greatly admire, that my brother went to that cruelly rejected me when I applied. when you look I'm around sorry, the, Ezra, what a mistake,
3: what I, a think mistake. The, I think they had I think they had good reasons
1: made. frankly. When you look around as a college professor now, do you wish that higher education had evolved in some of these directions, or, or do you think that the the path it took has been has been
2: productive?
3: Well, college education really is hidebound. I mean, much of university education is still built around a model that came to us directly from the 17th century, from Oxford and Cambridge, lectures and students sitting passively taking notes. I mean it's it's almost pre-Gutenberg it's not it's certainly not high tech and it's certainly not learn what you want teach what you want everybody has certain degrees of knowledge and certain capacities and certainly their own motivation it is based around grades and tests and the university education provided by even a wonderful university like Berkeley and I really do believe University of California system is among the strongest, biggest engines of upward mobility in America, and I love University of California, Berkeley. But it's not that different in essential structure from what education was like, certainly in my time and hundreds of years ago. It's funny, I
2: I
1: never thought about this. And I I actually want to get to this later in in our discussion. But there's a way in which you could see what you're doing on your Facebook page right now. We've been producing these tremendously popular videos, examining different parts of the presidential election, and particularly the Bernie Sanders campaign as a, a giant MOOC as a giant massive online course in the sort of Sanders affiliated theory of politics and elections right now. And it's been A lot of people who I don't think would ever have had access to that kind of information have have
3: found it through you and through Facebook. Facebook is interesting. Five years ago, I didn't know what social media were. And one of my sons is an assistant professor at Columbia. The other son runs collegehumor.com and is much closer, obviously, to the world of Los Angeles and entertainment. And it's son number two the College Humor son, who said to me one day, ''Dad, you know, I know you love to write books and, and you've devoted a lot of your life to writing books and and to expressing ideas in book form, but you've got to think about social media because a lot of my generation, while we read books, we're not as enamored with the written word. We tend to respond to visual images and videos and film.'' And that got me thinking about education in very different ways, Ezra. And from that moment, well, that was the beginning of doing videos and experimenting with videos and Facebook and Tumblr and, and also doing a film. Jay Kornbluth, very talented director, came and wanted to do a film about inequality. And he sat in on my class at Berkeley and then we made a film out of that called Inequality for All got a lot of awards. The irony to me is that even though I've been writing for 30 years, more people have seen Inequality for All and more people have seen the two-minute, three-minute videos that we do on Facebook than have ever read any one of my books. We see this
1: at Vox, too. What can happen when a video goes viral, particularly on Facebook, are numbers that sort of boggle the mind. They're just unlike anything else you see anywhere. And and I think part of that's the algorithm. But part of it is also that the work you've been doing there is really fantastic. But I want to keep us backed up for a minute. The context for this discussion is that in addition to being, I think, one of the most articulate and interesting and I think persuasive supporters of Bernie Sanders in this election, you were a labor secretary for Bill Clinton in, in 1992 to 96. And prior to that, you knew Clinton at Oxford, Hillary at Wesleyan. Tell me a little bit about your early history with him. Before Bill Clinton became president, you urged him to run. How did you understand the politics of the Clintons at that time when they were rising up and not yet national figures?
3: Well, I would say for the time, certainly in the nineteen. 70s, 1980s, they were progressives. Hillary continued to be very, very passionately involved in education when she was First Lady of Arkansas. Bill, I'll call him Bill, and I'll call her Hillary, that's how I know them, was a reform-minded governor. Now, there's a limit to how reformist he could be in Arkansas, and he learned his lesson because he, after his first term, he was booted out of office, and then he came back to serve another term, and he became much more politically savvy, and I think that their the arc of their political education, as I have seen it, is starting, as many of us do, with some quite idealistic notions of what the country needs and that idealism tempered by the reality of politics. And means and ends of becoming, not confused, but existing in some degree of tension. And I think that's what happens to people, anybody in politics, uh, whether you're a conservative or you are a progressive or a liberal, the inevitability of, and I'm going to use the word compromise, Ezra, but I want to use it advisedly because it doesn't mean simply compromise. I mean, Lyndon Johnson, Franklin D. Roosevelt, they did ultimately compromise, but they were tough and they were very cunning, and they understood the political process very well, and that's how they got so much done. And I think that Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton, over the course of the years, the decades that I've known them, have become more and more politically savvy. Now, the question obviously rises, have they become so politically savvy that it's just about power or it's just about means, that they've forgotten the ends or that maybe they are not sincere about the ends. I don't think that's a fair critique. I bring it up because I hear it all the time. But I think that they have devoted their lives to public service because they care about public issues. They care about the public interest.
1: Do you think that their view or or I guess even more relevantly now her view of what means work in American politics, what what the pathways of American politics are that are available for achieving a real result are anachronistic? Do you think that they have a view of how you get things done in American politics that was maybe true in 1992 or too true, true in 1996 or maybe even true in 2000 but is not appropriate in in 2016 is 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 that part of the argument?
3: Well part of the reason that I have become so interested in the Bernie Sanders campaign and ultimately endorsed him is because I think that he does represent a kind of movement politics that we need in America in order to get anything substantially and boldly done proportional to the degree of problem we face in terms of concentrated income, wealth, and political power. It was not the case 30 years ago. This degree of concentration, obviously, it's grown up over the past 30 or 35 years. But now that we have this degree of concentrated income, wealth, and power, we need a movement to create a kind of countervailing power, as the great political economist John Kenneth Galbraith put it in the early 50s. A countervailing power in order to take on the vested interests that have gained extraordinary control of our entire political system. It's no longer enough simply to talk about good policy. Policy is cheap. At least policy discussion is cheap. I'm as much of a policy wonk as anybody. I've been teaching public policy for 40 years. But it's becoming increasingly irrelevant because without a political will and political power and a movement behind all of that political will and political power, no policy is going to be put into effect. So something that
2: I
1: think has been a long time idea of the Clintons, and it's very fascinating to see the way in which I think Hillary Clinton in this election, but not in 2008, is diverging from it, is that when Bill Clinton runs for the presidency, and and please correct anything I have wrong here, because you know this history much, much better than I do. But when Bill Clinton runs for the presidency in 1992, he is running in the context of a Democratic Party that has lost three presidential elections in a row, And he is running in in some ways to reposition it, The, the, the idea is not that it needs a movement, but that it needs to find a center and it needs to refashion a brand that will appeal to more people. And there are important ways, I think, in which Hillary Clinton in 2016 is in some ways going back on that legacy, sort of refinding the democratic interest groups and rebuilding a coalition that is more factional, at least in my view. But at the same time, I think that their skepticism of someone like Sanders is that they came of age in a period in American politics or being too liberal, much less being called a socialist would mean that you couldn't get anything done at all. Forget your movement. You might be able to get some college kids turned out, but you were going to get destroyed and then Republicans were going to take everything over and legislate in a much more conservative direction. Tell me what it is in your view that has changed that makes a, a movement like this something that can attain majority support and stick now. Because I often think when I hear arguments between Clinton and Sanders supporters, that is really the core of it. It's not the idea that A politics based on a a majoritarian liberal movement wouldn't be better than the politics that we have now, but a skepticism that what Sanders is doing will lead to that movement as opposed to lead to a rout in November.
3: Well, I think people are talking past each other. That is (laughs) the, the, the premise. If you came to your political understanding in the late 60s or 70s or even 1980s, And certainly if you practice politics or were involved directly in politics in the 80s and 90s, the assumption was that American politics was laid out on a long continuum from left to right. Democrats were on the left and the Republicans were on the right. And then, you know, the center was the center and you wanted to go to the center because that's where all the votes were. You know, it's like the old analogy, metaphor of the two hot dog stand vendors on a long boardwalk. Well, where are they going to stay? Well, where are they going to be if they want to maximize their hot dog sales? They're going to both be right smack next to each other in the center because if one goes to one end, the other one is going to go to that same end and get all of the hot dog sales for the rest of the boardwalk. That was the metaphor. That was the way we thought about politics. But that left out some very important phenomenon or phenomena that have occurred over the last several decades. And what it leaves out is this widening inequality. And again, it's not just economic. It is also political and it has to do with political power. The vast majority of Americans, according to almost every study on this issue, feel now a high degree of powerlessness they just don 't feel like they 've got any say, any control. The work of political scientists across the across the spectrum bears them out. The voice of average Americans now is less potent than it has been at any time in the post-war era, money talks, politics are dominated by a handful of people, relatively speaking. And so the left-right continuum is beside the point. The real interesting divide is establishment versus anti-establishment. That is, do you feel like the game is rigged against you and what are you going to do about it? Or are you among the riggers of the game? And that is not as easily portrayed or easily understood as a boardwalk analogy or left versus right. It's much more about power. It's a subject that we don't really like to talk about very much in America. Bernie Sanders has put very central to his campaign, but it is now also becoming a central issue in the Republican Party. I mean, Donald Trump, I mean, don't hear anything I am saying to suggest even remotely that I admire or support anything Donald Trump has said or believes in. But I do see the Trump phenomenon as another aspect of this anti-establishment fury against the people who have power, who have really rigged the game in their own interest and against the vast majority. And that's the most, I think, significant aspect of the new politics, the politics that is born really in 2008 in the financial crisis. You have the Tea Partiers and the occupiers both on different sides but reacting to the bailout of Wall Street, the Tea Partiers against government, the occupiers against Wall Street, but they're the two sides of the same coin. And the Tea Partiers and that movement becomes to some extent a progenitor of a new Republican politics of which Donald Trump is part of, and I think in in some important ways represents, and obviously Bernie Sanders is kind of the direct linear descendant of the Occupy movement. So I would like to present a, not
1: exclusive, but I think an alternative view, and I'd love to have you poke holes in it because you've thought about this a lot, and it's something I think about a lot. Politics, from what I have watched and and, and seen and reported on while I've been in Washington, feels to me that it is a little bit like physics, in that there are different rules for things that are very big and things that are smaller. And when I hear people say that money is the core driver of outcomes in American politics, I'm I'm pretty skeptical of that, and and particularly when it's put in opposition to the the fundamental and rising polarization of the two parties in, in Congress. And here's the way I mean that. I can think of a lot of examples of issues where the money was all on one side. Immigration reform is a great example. But there was an infrastructure bill a couple years ago. It was supported by both the Chamber of Commerce, which is the most powerful player, certainly in money terms, on the right, and the AFL-CIO, which is the biggest union player on the left. And it went nowhere. And I watched that happen again and again and again and again. And what I came to see as the core explanatory principle in American politics was that when there was a big issue, that because elections were zero sum and accomplishments give one party or another a leg up in the election, both because they can brag about the accomplishment and because they get the actual benefit of the accomplishment, a better economy, people getting insurance who didn't have it before, a tax cut, whatever it might be, that that fundamental divide where the minority party rationally tries to make the majority party into a failure so they can win the next election it takes over almost no matter where the money is meanwhile the money is tremendously powerful in terms of how the bills are actually written it's very very powerful in terms of what amendments get into them very very powerful in terms of their structure but Those things are felt, but not often seen quite to the same degree. And so I often think when I I hear arguments about campaign finance reform, and I will basically sign on to almost any campaign finance reform proposal you can put in front of me. I'm a very big believer in virtually all of the major ways you would fix this here. And I'm particularly a fan of... The ideas is it would increase small donor power. But I often think that would fix a lot less than people think, that the things that really upset them tend to be whether health care reform happens or not, whether there's an infrastructure bill or not, whether there's immigration reform or not. And I'm not sure money would change that. And in states like Arizona, where we've had pretty significant campaign finance reform, it really hasn't. They're still very polarized. The politics are still very bitter. So I'm curious about your ordinal ranking of the problems in politics.
3: Well, I think you're taking too limited a view of what money buys and what it doesn't buy. I've seen Washington change so dramatically since I first went down there as an intern for Robert F. Kennedy in 1967, and then I worked for Robert Bork in the late, uh, for in the Robert late Bork. 70s. Yes, I was I uh, did an not know that. solicitor general. Right. Yes, 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 yes. We'll come back to that. But what money buys is not just votes. Uh, Money buys the agenda. What gets on the agenda? I mean, the fact that, for example, the carried interest loophole, that is an abomination. It has no economic justification. Everybody on all sides of it says it should not exist. It's for, as you know, hedge fund and private equity managers. Nothing ever happens to it. It stays there. It is not on anybody's agenda. Or you look simply at the overwhelming power of think tanks and what money has bought in terms of expertise and the experts, academic experts and other experts who are constantly being trotted out in congressional hearings and on television, the propaganda machines that money has bought, the the media time and attention that money has bought, the ways in which what is even taken for granted as not possible or being possible or being on the agenda or off the agenda at any given time is characterized by money. I mean, I remember, Ezra, when I started in Washington in the late 1960s, 3% of retiring members of Congress became lobbyists. Now it's 50%, almost 50% of retiring members of Congress become lobbyists and they do it because of the money. And when everybody, when half of your entire members of Congress, congressional delegations know that they're going to become lobbyists, you don't think that affects how they think about their patrons and what they are willing to talk about and what they're willing to put on on the agenda and not? Of course it does. It's not just a purchase of an individual vote. It's the culture that has changed. It is the set of assumptions about what's politically possible. It's the the entire frame of reference. And if you get out of Washington, out of the Beltway, out of New York, and you go to talk to people, as I'm sure you do, and I, and I do whenever I get the chance, you know, in the heartland, in Missouri or in the South, working class whites and, and blacks and Latinos and others, you find the, the degree of cynicism about what almost all of them are now calling crony capitalism a term of opprobrium on both the left and the right, is higher than it's ever been, than I ever remember it, because they know in their gut that the system is, is rigged against them. The point you just made about
1: the way money corrupts the system by whatever its ultimate effect making people feel it's rigged against him. It's a point that Larry Lessig makes a lot, and I think very, very eloquently. And it's why, as I, as I said a couple of minutes ago, I would support anything virtually that would persuade people that outcomes are not being driven by campaign contributions. And, and as you say, much of what you point out there, the congressman going to lobbying, it's a grotesquery. And at the same time, and, and I do want to just push this one more time, because I think it's an interesting question. Because how you think about it, I think it really structures to some degree, how you think about what needs to be done to get better outcomes in American life. You brought up the carried interest proposal, and that is a insane tax loophole that basically allows hedge funders to get their earnings taxed at incredibly, incredibly, incredibly low rates. And you said that's not on anybody's agenda. And yet it is on the agenda. I mean, it's constantly on the agenda. It's been in every one of President Obama's budgets for the last number of years, and he's a president and is very much an agenda setter. It's a mainstay of his speeches. Despite the fact that he got a lot of, frankly, financial industry money, particularly in 2008, it's something that is a constant in the Democratic budgets. Sanders is the ranking member on the Senate Budget Committee for the Democrats. So it's certainly something he is worried about. And the reason it doesn't go anywhere, I mean, is in, in part money. Certainly, it's in part lobbying. But more than that, it's that nothing is going anywhere. It is that even the things that are not as lobbied against, even the changes in President Obama's budget that do not have the financial industry arrayed against them, are going nowhere because the polarization has gridlocked Congress so totally that Republicans, I think, completely rationally see it as in their interest to make sure that Obama accomplishes more or less nothing for the remainder yes, of but his even, term. But, yeah, please. But as even, even
3: before the current gridlock, I mean, when Democrats had a majority 2009, 2010, If you want to talk about carried interest, proposals to get rid of that went nowhere. I mean, even Chuck Schumer, a senator from New York, Democrat, who is likely to become the majority leader if the Democrats take over the Senate, was against it. It was against getting rid of the carried interest loophole. And he told me he was against it because he thought that focusing on hedge fund managers and private equity managers was unfair. You should actually focus on everybody who takes advantage of it. Well, maybe he was sincere. I'd like to give him the benefit of the doubt. But the fact is that, and I don't want to over. Overuse this example of private equity and hedge funds and and the carried interest, but I have been in room after room, meeting after meeting, where people say, "Oh, we've got to get rid of it," and then there is a kind of nod and wink. Everybody knows it's never going to be got rid of. Or or take another example. I mean, there are are thousands and thousands. Antitrust. Everybody, Republicans, Democrats, for years, for 30 years have said, oh, well, antitrust law is very important. We've got to keep the market competitive. A competitive market is very, very vital. And then what happens? Democrats, even in the first two years of the Obama administration, even in the first two years of the Clinton administration, Democrats are not really all that interested in antitrust. In fact, they start defunding the antitrust division, of the Justice Department or the Federal Trade Commission, where they start making it difficult to actually prosecute antitrust cases. And what's the result of all of that? Democrats and Republicans alike, it means more and more concentration, market power, in cable. You've just had, just a couple of days ago, the Federal Communications Commission approve a major merger of another major two cable companies. I mean, you have uh, Americans paying more for internet broadband service than the citizens of almost any other industrialized nation, and, and we have among the slowest service. And why is that? It's because of political power. Ezra, you know, as well as I do, there are too many examples to even talk about the basic building blocks of capitalism. You know, look at property. What is property? Why are drug prices so high in America? Much higher per capita than they are in other places that are advanced industrial countries because we allow Under our laws, pharmaceutical companies to pay generic manufacturers of pharmaceuticals to not introduce their generic versions until years after the patents run out. That's pay for delay. No other country allows that. It's costing Americans... Uh, billions of dollars. Uh, well,
4: And
1: to your point there, we don't allow, we don't have a national health system that that bargains down the prices. But I, I do want to ask you one question there about taxes, because I think it speaks to the oh nine ten. And I actually think it's interesting how people feel about what happened in 2009, 2010, when Democrats had these real supermajorities and in, 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 well, a close supermajority in the Senate and the presidency, uh, I think structures a lot of their think Everything you say about 09010 is right. They didn't focus on carried interest, but they did make the tax code markedly more progressive, right? What Obamacare fundamentally is, is a healthcare subsidy to poor people paid for by a sharp tax increase on rich people, and then cuts to the Medicare Advantage program, which is a pretty sharp cut of a subsidy to the insurance companies. And that was an outcome, I think. There are a lot of deals cut in Obamacare, to reduce, certainly, and particularly the pharmaceutical industry's anger against it. And they get, I think, either neutrality or positivity from the pharmaceutical industry. But it is a case that a lot was done in the tax code during that period that I think you wouldn't predict with from the pure money model. What I see in that period when I look at that is that Democrats made a series of decisions about what it was that they thought would end up being the accomplishments that they could have legacies based on and that they could run on. And they did the stimulus out of panic, right? They felt that was necessary. But then they could have done energy, they could have done tax reform, and they did Obamacare. And you look at the final vote on that and you don't see that vote structured by which members of the Senate came from states with a large health insurance concentration, you only see it structured by anything but pure partisanship. Every Senate Democrat votes for it. Virtually every House Democrat votes for it. Every Republican votes against it. And I think the thing that, that always catches me is that is how the vote looks on virtually every major piece of legislation in the Obama era. and. I always think when I hear the arguments about money, and again, where I am genuinely would, would do all the campaign finance reform proposals that are on the table, I just worry they won't fix that problem, that we will wake up and it will still be the case that our politics has been broken apart by the fact that it requires compromise in an era when the parties have gotten too far apart from each other to compromise. To
3: some extent, we are replicating the kind of talking – past each other. Obviously polarization is one of the major history. characteristics. <laughs> but, one of the major characteristics of our time. But if you go back to Obamacare, and I am a great, great fan of Obamacare. I think the Affordable Care Act marked an extraordinary achievement. But it was the kind of achievement that was only possible, as you yourself just said, because the pharmaceutical industry was bought off, because uh, part of the healthcare industry was bought off. And those buying off, that, that was expensive. I mean, we are paying the price to buy off the pharmaceutical industry in terms of, for example, you can't use Medicare to negotiate lower drug prices. Partisanship, to one's side, money is still powerful and it's a powerful driver in politics. And the evidence is you've got to buy off all of these industries or enough of the industries in order to make a coalition that will support whatever you want to do. That is a politics that ultimately is too expensive to maintain. You just can't go on down that road, even if you get rid of partisanship, you still are going to have, with all of this money, with the dominance of large corporations and Wall Street and now increasingly billionaires, you're still going to have a system incapable of responding to the public interest without these without these payoffs. Martin Gillins of Princeton, professor, and, and Benjamin Page of Northwestern did a study even before Citizens United, and found that the impact on major pieces of legislation, even of average citizens banding together, was negligible. It was less than 1%. It was almost all big corporations and Wall Street and big, big money. And that was regardless of the party, and that was regardless of the of the year. He, they looked at years where Democrats were in control and and Republicans were in control. So You've got two problems. I'm not saying you're wrong, Ezra, but if you deal with a partisanship problem and you don't deal with a money problem, you're not really anywhere. How did you come to work for, for Robert Bork and, and what was that experience like? He was teaching antitrust at Yale Law School. When I was at Yale Law School, he evidently liked my work. When he became Solicitor General of the United States, he asked me to come down and be uh, an assistant. To him, so that for two years I briefed and um, and argued Supreme Court cases. They didn't assign me the most <laughs> important cases, but it was a it was a heady experience and I liked him. I mean I, we disagreed on a lot of things. I, I uh, politically, we were on very different sides of the aisle and the ideological divide, but but I respected him a great deal. He had a very
1: different view specifically of antitrust than you, yeah.
3: Yes. In fact, his view of antitrust became the dominant view, and it was a very microeconomic analysis that looked at, as it assumes that, assumed that consumer welfare was the only issue that anybody needed to pay any attention to and that the market, so-called, would attend to every other problem. He took politics and power out of antitrust and also assumed away some of the most important institutional issues in antitrust in terms of, for example, today one would talk about the power of the major high-tech firms over their network, their software platforms. That would not fit into a Borkin analysis. Nevertheless, having said that, I did enjoy working with him. I, I, I liked sparring with him. I thought he was very, very interesting. I didn't plan to stay as assistant to the Solicitor General more than a couple of years, I, I, but uh, it was a good experience.
4: Support for the gray area comes from Shopify. Imagine an action movie where the hero has to sell 1,000 Barbra Streisand t-shirts in 72 hours to save a major American city. Save the city from what, exactly? That's for audiences to decide. But how would they do it? They've used Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform flexible enough to help your business sell at every stage of growth. Whether you're the main character in a tentpole action movie or the real life CEO of a multinational company, no matter what you're making, Shopify can help you sell it from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person point of sale system. Shopify offers the flexibility to support your operation. They also offer something called Shopify magic, an AI powered helper created to help you stress less and sell more. Try it for yourself. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at Shopify.com slash box. You can go to Shopify.com slash box now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash box.
0: This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there
1: you have something I don't have and that most of our listeners don't have, which is that you have run a cabinet agency. You ran the Department of Labor. And I'd really be curious to hear you talk about that experience in in the context of this discussion. Did, did you feel when you were in government at that level that the choices you could make were highly bounded by money? And if not, do you think that's changed or do you think it's that money is powerful in some institutions but not in others? Well,
3: in the mid-1990s, I would say money was now, again, this is pre-Citizens United. Money was big. It was important. The countervailing power in terms of unions and small businesses and all of the other ways in which we traditionally have countervailed that kind of big power at least traditionally over the last 60, 70, 80 years, was already declining. And the money from those major centers of power the big corporations, Wall Street, and very rich individuals was increasing so that, yes, as a cabinet secretary, I saw that if I wanted, for example, where I thought it was a good idea to move on a regulation, for example, that limited where workers could smoke because of of ambient tobacco smoke in the, in the workplace, well, I couldn't get that done. We tried, but... The Tobacco Institute and its allies in the business community just hammered that regulation back. Uh, There was no hope for that.
1: Let me me stop you on that story for for one second, if I could, just because I think something you said there, I'd love for you to expand on, because I think this often gets shorthanded. When you say they hammered that regulation back... What did they do? What specifically happened? Because something I think that's- Well, they
3: organized Congress. I was getting calls from not just Republicans, I was getting calls from a lot of Democrats, members of Congress, representatives, not just tobacco states, but all over the place, and senators. And they said, you know, if you do that, don't just don't do it. I mean, from the oversight committees, the authorization committees of Congress who oversaw the Labor Department, they said, don't just don't do that. And what is the implicit threat there? The implicit threat is you're not going to get you're not going to get a, enough uh, an appropriation uh, to carry on your work in in that case the occupational safety and health administration we're going to slash its budget or if you try to do something else that we don't like in for example you impose very very strict constraints on pensions on what it is that pension institutions that, that handle pensions under the Pension and Welfare Benefits Administration and, and the relevant statutes. If you pass regulations or you enact regulations that are going to make it harder, they may have more disclosures. It may be fairer to pensioners. But if you make it just more difficult for us, we're going to beat you back. We're going to cut your appropriation. Yes, it was always the threat appropriation cuts. And this wasn't new. Years before, I was at the Federal Trade Commission in the late 1970s, when the business community was just becoming organized in Washington. And I remember we considered a rule having to do with advertising directed at children, a very sweet Sugary cereal and and soft drinks, and we wanted to regulate that advertising and again, uh, we, we were threatened. I was part of meetings and this go back to the 1970s meetings in which Republicans, and Democrats, in Congress would say, "If you do that, we are cutting back the appropriation of the Federal Trade Commission." In fact, there were a couple of weeks there in the late 70s where the Federal Trade Commission was closed because it's an independent regulatory agency. And the then commissioner, the the chairman, said, we don't care. We're going to go ahead. And (laughs) Congress said, well, OK, if you're going to do that, we're going to close you down. I cannot emphasize to you, you don't have these threats don't have to be carried out for them to be credible.
1: Let me ask you about another part of the process where I think that money and and lobbyists are very powerful and it's very undernoticed, which is if you had gone forward with that tobacco regulation and you had gotten into the rulemaking process, this is a part of the government that in my experience does not get a ton of coverage because it's a little esoteric. It happens mostly behind closed doors. People don't get that activated around it for the most part but that we have developed a rulemaking process by which regulations go forward that have, you know, these spaces for public comment, these meetings. And... All these things were done to increase transparency in theory to make it more possible for the public to weigh in, but that what's really happened is capture by the industries and players that have a financial incentive and the financial resources to master this weird process, to make sure that they have highly prepared advocates showing up to these meetings and sending into these comment periods. But at Labor, you guys did a lot of these regulations, so I'm curious if that if that description rings true to you or, or if I'm
3: giving it short shrift. No, it's absolutely true, it's, it's, and it's got worse. I mean, big corporations have armies, platoons of lawyers who descend on the regulatory rulemaking process and not only delay it, but if they don't like something, they will threaten to appeal to the federal courts, and that's an additional delay. And that threat doesn't have to be carried out many times before the the agency says, okay, 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 we'll we'll compromise, we'll do as much as you can. Now look at Dodd Frank. Dodd Frank left most of the details. Then we're talking about the Dodd Frank financial reform bill that was supposed to clean up Wall Street. Left most of the details to the agencies: the Commodity Futures Trading Corporation, the uh, the FDIC, the SEC. Those agencies have for years been under siege by huge numbers of lawyers and lobbyists representing the interests of the big banks, and they've been watering down Dodd-Frank every week. I mean, delaying and watering down, delaying and watering down. It is quiet. It is hidden from public view. It is a way in which money has a huge and hidden influence, which gets me back, in a way, Ezra, to the the basic you know, the reason that I think public education is so important, the reason I not only do the writing of the books and the, and the films and the videos and so forth, because if the public doesn't understand what's going on, they fall for the political platitude and mythology that there's a choice here between the free market and government. And if you believe in the free market, you're conservative. And if you believe in government and want more government, you're, you're liberal or progressive. Without understanding that you can't have a market unless you have rules. Our markets depend on rules, laws, regulations. And the real issue is who has most influence over those rules. Is it a smaller and smaller and more and more powerful group of corporations and, and financial institutions and billionaires, or is it what we like to think of as a democracy? And unfortunately, it's become a smaller and smaller group. If I were conspiratorially minded, I might think that they advance the mythology of this choice between free market and government in order to distract attention from
1: what they're doing every day. Uh, it's something that I think is an interesting question that opens up. Dean Baker, who's an economist in Washington, wrote a book a couple of years back. It's actually a free ebook if anybody in the audience wants to download it. And I really, really, really recommend it. It's, it's influenced my thinking on this a lot. And it's called Loser Liberalism. And the fundamental point he's making in that book, and you, you may have read it, is that Liberalism, And I think in general he would say government has this problem of trying to manage and affect the economy through taxation and that it is leaving untouched the question of how the economy is structured and that it's leaving that question untouched in part as you say because there is this idea – that to get into the inner workings of the economy would somehow be messing with the free market. But that when you look at it, so much of how the economy actually works is based on rules that the government set. Patents are a great example. Copyrights are a great example. That there are all these things we have done to structure the rules of the game. And and, and Baker's point is that if we are afraid, we just citizens, the government, etc., to revisit those rules in an era when those rules are clearly producing tremendously unequal outcomes, that there's only going to be so much we can ever do through taxes, that that ultimately is not going to be enough, that you have to be willing to ask yourself about the structure that is creating this kind of compensation distribution, not just trying to change the distribution on the back end. Do you agree with that?
3: I don't really agree with it, but I've written about it in my latest book called Saving Capitalism. I mean, we uh, really should read off. Saving
1: Capitalism by Robert Reich.
3: And, so. <laughs> it takes off from where Dean Baker and also Joe Stiglitz, who's talked about this a lot. Right, yeah. And explores the ways in which the system is rife with upward distributions from average working people or the lower middle class or working class, we used to call them and the poor, to the big corporations, their major investors and stockholders and, and obviously their, their top executives. Through these hidden upward distributions. that are manipulated through very, very low visibility rulemakings, uh, regulations, and laws that are complicated that nobody pays attention to. And Dean is absolutely right that by paying attention instead to the redistribution after the market has done all of this hidden upward predistribution, you might want to call it, we end up losing sight of the big action, what's what's really occurring. If we got rid of the upward predistributions, we wouldn't need nearly as many downward post-distributions.
1: Give me three upward predistributions that you would get rid of if
3: if you were king for a day. Well, one has to do with monopolization. I think antitrust has been on the back burner now for years. There's too much concentration in airlines, in healthcare, in banking, in cable broadband, in industry after industry, which means that not only are consumers paying too much, but you also have more and more political power in the hands of fewer and fewer people and actors in an industry that in turn can get more favors, corporate welfare, or changes in the rules that benefit them. So I
2: would
1: I would strengthen antitrust. Can I ask you one uh, quick question second, on antitrust? This is not an area I focus on, so I freely admit my impression this may be wrong. My somewhat uninformed but somewhat informed impression was that people had been surprised by the aggression of some of the recent antitrust moves, particularly around Comcast, Time Warner, and T-Mobile. Who's going to buy T-Mobile? They're merging with one of the other major cellular players. Charter.
3: Charter. Is that the one? That, the, no, T-Mobile Sprint
1: about? was was going to do a merger with it was either Verizon. Well, there are a
3: number of. Together. I mean, they've all been and they cut that
1: off too. So, my impression this is wrong, right? So, so, you're saying that the antitrust has weakened; it is not strengthened in recent years. No, it's it's
3: weakened. Okay. Uh, it, it's a big deal when they when they put something on hold, like the time. Time Warner wanted to merge with Comcast, and that. Became too difficult, and the antitrust authorities made it too difficult for them. But what do you have a few days ago? You have Charter is actually taking over, I believe it's Time Warner and somebody else, creating the largest number two player in the cable industry. I mean, cable used to be, if you go back 15 years, it was not concentrated. There are many, many more cable operators. In fact, 20 years ago, it was mostly regional and local. Now you've got to three or four big ones. Airlines, 20 years ago, you had 14 major airlines. Now we're down to four major airlines. And even though fuel prices have plummeted, uh, airline ticket prices haven't gone down very much. Or look at the middlemen in the agricultural industry. You've got still a lot of small farmers, but the big processors are the ones who are raking in the money. Monsanto and others—they are the ones who are who are monopolizing. They're not monopsonists, uh, not just monopolists uh, in the sense that they uh, have enormous power over their suppliers. And even in high tech, the more dominant that Google and and Facebook and. Amazon and Apple become, the more power they have over everybody who not only wants to buy in, but everybody who wants to provide content and anybody who wants to supply anything. They have essentially monopolies over their their digital platforms, their their software.
2: Do you feel Google should be broken up? There's certainly been talk of that in Europe. Well, I
3: don't know that breaking up. I think the banks, the biggest banks should be broken up. I, I think that antitrusts can be much more subtle. In other words, Google could be forced to share some of its proprietary software with some of its maybe potential competitors, make it even public. That would reduce its market power significantly and also its political power. Google is now the number one lobbyists in Washington, last time I looked. But my my point is that, Antitrust really does need to be invigorated, reinvigorated. In the progressive era after, between 1901 and 1916, you did have Teddy Roosevelt and Taft and Wilson take antitrust seriously and go after uh, some of the the major uh, economic concentrations that had been responsible for not only the economic devastations that preceded the Progressive Era, but also the political corruption. Antitrust is about politics. It's not just about economics. And it needs to be understood in its political dimension. So, antitrust would be a very, very important vehicle. I would also look at bankruptcy. Bankruptcy is now basically tilted, rigged in favor of the biggest corporations and the richest individuals like Donald Trump who can use bankruptcy, a serial bankruptcy uh, user to protect his assets. But if you are a student debtor, if you're loaded 20 years out with student loans, you still cannot manage to pay. You are not able to reorganize that debt under bankruptcy because the major corporations and and lenders uh, and financiers have essentially exercised a great deal of power. If you're a homeowner, you can't use bankruptcy to to reorganize and you're underwater, you can't use bankruptcy to reorganize your your mortgage debt. Again, that's because of of who has had control over the bankruptcy laws. And then the third area I'd look at Ezra is is finance. More broadly, I think that the The ways in which we have tried to deal with the problems of financial cartelization and centralization in the form of the biggest Wall Street banks are just wrong. You can't do it through regulation. I think Dodd-Frank was a good attempt, but it's proving to be inadequate. So we got into this
1: when you said that you have put tremendous effort into books, into videos, and into the documentary to help people sort of understand that this, is, this nexus between the, the free market and the government is not nearly as clear cut as people say it is. I'd love to talk for a minute, quite selfishly, about something else you did to try to help with this, because it, it affected my life very greatly, which is that you co-founded The American Prospect, which was the magazine that gave me my first job in journalism. And I, I'd love to hear a little bit about that founding story from your perspective. That came after your time, in as Labor Secretary, what, what led to the founding of The American Prospect?
3: Well, Bob kudner wonderfully thoughtful and engaging and, and brilliant political economist, and Paul Starr, a professor now at Princeton, previously at Harvard, a sociologist, Pulitzer Prize-winning sociologist, and I, we got together about 25 years ago. It was actually, I think, before the start of the Clinton administration, and we felt that there was no place for very thoughtful not academic as in academic journal but wonky in the best sense articles and uh, and discussions that would enable people to know at a deeper level than the, the normal articles that they come across in newspapers and and the media uh, what was really happening in public policy and we had the conceit that there would be a market for this kind of magazine, and and we worked very very hard, and and we got together some of the best young people we could, among whom was this young fellow named Ezra Klein. Much later, um, after
1: you guys had already changed, after and, you guys had already changed <laughs> everything, I I bear, well, no, we, I bear no credit in this.
2: Well,
3: you you do get credit. You were in a, a distinguished line of of young people who we'd we'd found to carry on this this tradition of of thoughtful and well-written and wonky, but very important stuff. That was our idea. I th- the American prospect continues. It's never had a very large cir- circulation, but it. I-, I like to think it does have an effect on opinion leaders.
1: No, I, I think it's more than that. I mean, I've, I've written this before publicly, but I think a tremendous amount of the newer trends in digital political writing, right, which has really taken a, a tremendous turn towards the wonkish in, in the last five years. You you just have not just things like Wonkblog, which I was involved in starting at the Washington Post, but the agenda at Politico, the upshot at the New York Times, and just a, a generalized comfort with writing about policy and economics. And, and I think so much of that emerged early on with the American Prospect taking its sensibility and being one of the very early policy magazines to really embrace the internet. I got into blogging and pardon and and certainly into journalism by reading Tapped, which was the American Prospects blog. And it had this amazing moment when it was written by Nick Confessori and Chris Mooney, who have both gone on to do... Nick is at um, the New York Times and Chris is at the Washington Post. And really, I think... you can trace some of the best work being done today back to the American Prospect managing to bring together traditional journalism techniques, wonkish work that used to only be true in journals. And, and for a little while, the American Prospect was a journal and the Internet. And it's much more conversational, colloquial style. And I think it was in that fusion that a lot of people, myself included, that tradition led to a lot of people's careers, myself included.
3: Well, Ezra, what we discovered, and it was a long process, I mean, that was 25 years ago when we began, was that there is an audience, it may not be huge, but there is an audience and an increasing appetite for the kind of detail, policy detail that explains what's happening, that explains in political terms and economic terms and sometimes sociological terms, what otherwise seems impenetrable. People want to know. Uh, One of the big discoveries to me recently with regard to the videos, the two and a half minute videos that that we've done is how popular they are and it's they're popular even though they're very wonky i mean i we did one years ago on the public option when the affordable care act uh, and the obama administration was thinking about a public option it turned out i mean we explained i explained the public option and i did a little cartoon easel it turned out that people Desperately wanted to understand it. They didn't understand it. They didn't know what the public option was. They, Their eyes glazed over when anybody talked in official terms about the public option because there was so much jargon associated with it. They just wanted to understand. And that's been, since the founding of the American Prospect, all the way through Inequality for All, the movie that Jay Kornbluth and I did, all the way through the videos, that's been a big discovery for me. The hunger that average Americans have to understand what is otherwise impenetrable and complex. And that's why we're working on another documentary now that takes off from Saving Capitalism. We have a Kickstarter campaign, which incidentally is another fabulous aspect of the internet. Uh, You can actually raise money.
5: Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life.
1: Yeah, I really want to emphasize something you said, because I think it is an underplayed reality and learning of the Internet. And it's much more optimistic than what people usually say. But I have found again and again and again that if you can convey important, complex topics clearly, there isn't just a a big audience, but you can outcompete everything else. I think for so long, journalism... It never gave up on this, but I think that often it it approached some of these questions in a very dutiful way. That it figured if you were covering something like the public option or banking regulation, that you were sort of doing. I used to hear uh, editors refer to it as like the spinach, right? That'd be like the greens of journalism, and you were supposed to eat that because you you were a good a good boy and a, or a good girl, and you wanted to get your nutrition. And you know something about your videos is that they have a a real spark. They have a lot of humor. They're very clear. They're fun to watch. You have a great pre- Presence, I think something that we really tried to do at WonkBlog was always approach policy with enthusiasm to to sort of convey to the audience all the time that we thought this was really interesting. We thought this was exciting, and they would too. And when we were at The Post, we were the, the biggest digital vertical there. I would love to hear you talk for a minute or two about what you think are the ingredients or the characteristics of good writing or good explanation more broadly, because it could be in video, about policy. What do you think separates work that the audience can connect to and can understand from work that that does what I think is a worse thing this kind of journalism can do, which is make people feel like these topics are too complex for them and that they're not going to be able to follow along?
3: Well, I think, first of all, you put your finger on it. I think they have to be fun, fun to watch, fun to read. Secondly, there's got to be, and closely related to fun, is a little bit of humor. I mean, you can't take yourself too seriously because you're engaged in what I would say, maybe point number three, a little bit of a journey, an intellectual journey, but also a journey into the heart of darkest capitalism, darkest Washington power structures. And finally, you can't get locked into economic analysis because economic analysis that looks to efficiency, microeconomics, or maybe macroeconomic growth theory is just a tiny little part of the search for truth and the search for the public interest. You've got to look at whose interests are being elevated and advanced and whose interests are being suppressed, who bears the burden, particularly as inequality of income, wealth, and power widens, you've got to be very sensitive and very clear about why this policy is good or bad in terms of its distributional impacts. That's something that people don't get nearly enough of. And finally, actually I said finally, but I'm saying finally, 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 I think a little attitude can't hurt. I mean, as long as you are very clear, very honest, people can trust you, I think that having a little edge often helps as well. People want to be able to see where a particular policy issue fits in a larger dimension, in a larger context, in terms of the currents of, of values uh, that are cross-cutting America right now. And I don't mean uh, left versus right, as we talked about before. I think that's that's just a, a fiction. I'm talking about really whether whether something is in the broad public interest, or something is in the narrow interest of a few, whether something is in the global public interest or it's in a very xenophobic, nationalistic interest, and where we're we going, where is the country heading, and is that good or is that bad? People want this, all of these elements. I think I, I probably listed about six. I think that they are all elements that are important in terms of carrying a message and demystifying for the public these otherwise almost impenetrable issues of public policy. I think,
2: in
1: in many ways, this is a good segue to talk a little bit about Bernie Sanders, who, as you mentioned earlier, you've endorsed and, you, and you've been, I think, very influential in supporting. We spoke at the beginning of, of this discussion about how you met Hillary Clinton and, and your first experience with her. I'd love to to know... Assuming you you and Sanders have met, how you guys met and what what your first experience of him was like. What is
3: he like? Well, he's like what you see on I mean, you see what you get. I, I saw Bernie <laughs> Sanders. Right. Um, I saw him, I guess it was two weeks ago Sunday. Um I was on George Stephanopoulos's ABC. Sunday morning program this week. Uh, I was on the panel and Bernie was being interviewed and he came barreling into the green room and he saw me and he just hugged me. I know, just big bear hug. Bob, how are you? I said, you know, uh, that Va- I don't know how you managed to go to the Vatican and back so quickly and <laughs> have all this energy. And then he just started talking about meeting the Pope and being at the Vatican and how it, extraordinary it was. And there is no difference between Bernie Sanders' one-on-one with a friend and Bernie Sanders that you see publicly. About two months ago, he called my house and, and my wife picked up the phone. He said, hi, is Bob in? This is Bernie Sanders. And she said, she said, Bernie Sanders? And he said, yes, who's this? And she said, Perrion. And and uh, he said, oh, well, it's very, very nice to to meet you. And she told me later, she, she, what a lovely man. You know, She just warm, radiating warmth. And that's how I knew him when he was in Congress. It's how I knew him in the Senate. He's passionate, and his passions are right there, and they've been there for, really, I'm sure, since the beginning of his political career. Very intense, but he also is very genuine, very warm, very authentic, and people pick up on that. So I've done
1: a fair amount of reporting with him over the years, and I think everything you say, the what you see is what you get with him, which is very unusual, I find, with politicians. A lot of them have a very different public persona than a private one. He very much doesn't. I mean, he is very himself, and his interests and his convictions are very
3: authentic. Which I think is one of the big attractions. I mean, especially in this era, when there is such an anti-political feeling and so much cynicism about politics, people are very impressed by somebody who is using the overused word authentic.
1: I think that's right. I mean, something that I have always found very interesting in his career, and it's why he has always been such a fascinating member of Congress to report with, is that usually when you have outsider political candidates, they are people who are literally outside the political system. Donald Trump is a great example. He's never held elected office. Bernie Sanders is, on a resume level, as insider as you could possibly get. He's been serving in Congress for 20-some years at this point between the House and the Senate. He has been on every committee, not every committee, but more committees than most members of Congress. He has been involved in tons of legislation, tons of bills, tons of amendments, tons of debates. And yet he has remained quite apart from the political system. And And it takes a very certain kind of personality to be able to maintain those convictions and that kind of, of distance and truth to yourself over over a long period of time. And he has very much always had that. And, and it brings me to something I'm, I'm curious to hear your your perspective on. I have always found the good side of Bernie Sanders, or the, the thing that he does in the political system almost better than anyone else, is that he is very much uncowed in what kinds of policies he's willing to put forward. He is willing to consider things that other members of Congress really aren't. I always think here he's been a longtime advocate for replacing or creating a parallel track to allow pharmaceutical incentives to be dispersed not through patents but through prizes so that we'd give people, say, a billion dollars if they could find a cure for a certain kind of cancer. But once that cure was discovered and that prize dispersed, it would go immediately to generics so that it would be very, very cheap on the marketplace. On the other hand, I think that sometimes the downside with him is that he is very clear about who he's against, but he doesn't like seeing flaws in his own set of proposals. He's very committed and quick to dismiss things that he feels are benefiting industry or things that he feels come from the wrong place, even if there are policy reasons to think those are good ideas. Is that something you found with him, or do you think that's a, a, an air
2: judgment?
3: I would say that it's a generalization that is, is true part of the time. That is, he does come with a very strong conviction that is borne out most of the time uh, having to do with power. You know, that the agenda is being set by the powerful. I think he came to politics with that conviction, even when he was mayor of Burlington, Vermont. But that conviction has become more and more justifiable, let's put it that way, mm-hmm. in terms of what's, what's happened over the past 35 years. He reminds me a great deal of Paul Wellstone, Senator Paul Wellstone, a dear, dear friend of mine who also had deep convictions, tended to see things in terms of power and who has it and who doesn't, and was suspicious when the powerful were making pitches to him, were skeptical, as Bernie Sanders is, about the motives of the privileged and the powerful. But I think it's, it's, again, it's been proven that skepticism uh, has been proven more and more sadly, more and more accurate. In terms of stubbornness, well, let's put it this way. Anybody in American politics today who has strong convictions and sticks to their guns and manages to continue to stick to their guns through, heaven knows, the typhoons of republicanism and 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 conservative Democrats who have come through. Those convictions have got to be strong enough to withstand those typhoons, so that there is going to be some degree of, yes, uh, we might call it stubborn, uh, but we also might call it principled. Do you think the Clintons have convictions strong enough to withstand those typhoons? Well, that's a question that I think is, is in, in a sense, one of the central questions, political questions facing Democrats today. I personally believe that Hillary Clinton is a thousand times better than any Republican who has any chance of becoming president. And I think she's the most experienced. I think she is the most qualified to be president of the system we have now. But the system we have now is corrupt. It is dysfunctional. And so I, by simply my perhaps overly optimistic tendencies, ask myself, well, who's best positioned to change the system? Who is the kind of person who would create or help create or help lead a movement toward the kind of system we need? And that leads me to Bernie Sanders, who stands for everything that I have been saying and writing about and worrying about and and talking about for 35 years. It would be, you know, people say to me sometimes, uh, old friends will say, well, don't you owe it to the Clintons to support Hillary? After all, Bill is an old friend. He made you labor secretary. Uh, Hillary is an even older friend. And I say to them back, yes, but I, I also have some responsibility to the principles that I've been living by and the ideals that I hold very, very dear and the understandings I have of American politics and what we need. You know, I if if Hillary gets the nomination, I will work my heart out for her. But right now, I think it's very important to not only be supportive of Bernie Sanders, but also to take seriously and to value what he is putting on the public agenda. Do you think
1: something you just said a second ago is very interesting to me? You, you said that Clinton, Hillary Clinton, is best qualified to be president of the system we have, and I like to ask why you think that's true. And I mean it in this way: we talked earlier about money in politics, and something that is a important relative of money in politics is influence networks in politics, right? And it's related to money, but it isn't exactly the same. But it is a case that when you have been at the top of American politics for a very long time, when you've been giving speeches to Goldman Sachs for six hundred and seventy. $75,000 for three of them, that the people you know, the people you are in contact with, the people who have your ear to some degree, whether or not they are the people giving you the most money, they are people with a lot of money. They are people who are at the top of America's pyramids of elite achievement. And that that itself, fully separate from donations, is biasing in a way. And that if you think the core problem is are those power networks, then having somebody who comes from them in a way that even Obama, who was himself a tremendous achiever, had just had not had the kinds of networks at the top of democratic politics for a long time that the Clinton did in a way. So even Obama didn't quite have that dimension to him. Do you think that that puts Clinton in some ways in a space where she might be a very capable politician, leader, uh, manager, etc.? but... If you are fundamentally worried at your core that the powerful and the elite have too much influence over American politics, that she is not the kind of candidate you want to see? Well, I don't think that she will
3: change the structure of power in America. She's not a movement leader. She will do, I expect, if she is president— what Obama has done, and that is to take the current structure of power and to make the deals that are possible within that structure and to do that deal-making in a way that helps the most people. But you're undoubtedly right, Ezra, in the sense that if you are in a social circle that reflects that power system, that that power structure, and I'm, I'm not now talking about the $675,000 from from Goldman Sachs, I don't know why that doesn't make any sense to me that she would have done that knowing full well that she was very likely to run for president. This is a very strange moment in her history.
2: This was in, it, it happened in 2013, Goldman Sachs was already a pretty unpopular institution.
3: Yeah, it doesn't compute. I, I, she didn't certainly, and she and her husband didn't need the money. I don't get it, but let's put that to one side for one second and just talk about the point you raised about social circles. Undoubtedly, you know, Franklin D. Roosevelt was a rich man and John F. Kennedy was a rich young man. Teddy Roosevelt was, a, was born into wealth. These people certainly had wealthy social circles, but they distanced themselves from those social circles with regard to the exercise of power. You have in Bill and Hillary Clinton, a couple who have not distanced themselves, who have who actually have immersed themselves in those social circles, uh, is that a problem? Well, not necessarily. I, it would be kind of McCarthy-esque to assume that anybody who is good friends with Wall Street and, you know, takes vacations in the East Hamptons, $200,000 a month houses, you know, that that immediately disqualifies them from being a major social reformer. I don't want to say that. But certainly, I have seen again and again how your social circle does affect your worldview. You begin to see the world through the eyes of others in that, in that social circle. And it's very subtle. It's very insidious. In the Clinton administration... I liked Bob Rubin, who was secretary, ultimately became Secretary of the Treasury, uh, beginning of the administration, was uh, head of the National Economic Council. Personally, I, I actually enjoyed his company a great deal, and we became good friends. But time and again, issue after issue, we were on opposite sides. And a lot of that had to do with his his worldview. He was viewing America's issues problems challenges through the eyes of wall street and that inevitably invariably meant that he came down opposite where i was on so many questions and, and and it it wasn't bad faith it wasn't that he was in it for the wrong reasons it was not i didn't i didn't doubt his his sincerity or his motivation but i did come to understand that he had a profoundly different view of the world than I did. So I want to ask you a
1: question about compromising with the system, and I want to ask it to you in two parts. And the first part is the hypothetical in which Bernie Sanders wins the nomination and wins the general election and is now president. And there's talk of changing the system there, but, you know, as President Obama, who— ran for office very much on the idea that he would change the system as someone who I think in the core of his bones was disgusted by certain ways that that American politics worked as someone who ran in a very serious way against special interests in 2008. And then he comes into office and he looks around and he often sees himself as having the choice between compromising with the system, but on the other hand, being the president who managed to pass near universal health care or launching what he would have seen and and what his administration would have imagined to be a doomed campaign on behalf of of single payer. And and you see this play out again and again and again. And you even see this at times with Bernie Sanders. Um, He comes from Vermont, where the main way in which Vermont's particular political culture clashes with liberalism is around guns and, and Bernie Sanders compromised with Vermont's view on guns. He has often been a quite pragmatic politician in terms of what he will ultimately vote for. He supported Obamacare, among other things, despite having some serious problems with it. And one question I have is, how do you think even a politician like him, given how difficult the system is to change and given the limited amount of political capital a president has and given the tremendous need you have as a president to begin doing things right off the bat that will change people's lives and seeing that the quickest way to do that is to work within the system's boundaries, not to go to war with the system and and potentially lose. So what would you advise him to do as somebody who's been on the inside if he won in order To not just go down the path, which I think you would see as a kind of failure of getting what you can get done, but leaving the system unchanged.
3: Well, I don't think the choice is either to be and play the game inside the system or to go to war with the system. I think there's a third choice that our most effective presidents have chosen. And that is to play the outside game as well as the inside game, to mobilize and organize and energize the public around a set of issues so that the public puts pressure on Congress and even on the administration itself to do the right thing. I, I, you know, there's a story of Franklin D. Roosevelt. In the election of 1936, uh, he's running for re-election, and the business community is almost uniformly against him. He says he welcomes their animus. Some woman comes up to him and says, Mr. President, if you're re-elected, I want you to tell me you're going to do this and this and this and this. And he turns to her and says, ma'am, if I am re-elected, I want to do everything on your list, but if I'm re-elected, you must make me Now, the purpose of that story and its retelling is to emphasize that even in the Depression, even when much of the country was behind Franklin D. Roosevelt, he still needed people to be sufficiently mobilized and organized outside Washington that he could get good things done inside Washington. If you play only the inside game, if you become just a deal maker inside the parameters of the system, then as we talked about when we talked about the Affordable Care Act, Ezra, it's going to be very costly. You've got to buy off every power center that you need in order to put together a coalition on every issue. You've got to have a public that is educated and is supportive of what you're doing. You've got to play the outside game at the same time by speaking to the public and mobilizing the public. And that's what Lyndon Johnson did the both inside and outside, Franklin D. Roosevelt did the inside and outside. Every major reformer, Teddy Roosevelt, also mobilized the public.
1: Let me play the cynic on this for a minute. It is such an important and, and key point. And the story of Franklin Delano Roosevelt saying, make me do it, is, it, it is, I think, one of the most beloved stories in, in American politics, because as you say, it is it is the way politics does and and, and should work. And yet every politician, including Obama, who I heard that story from members of his staff when he was coming in in 2008 – has, believes at least that they have tried. When you go back to FDR, you are in a period of 25% unemployment and Democratic majorities that look like nothing we have virtually ever seen. When you talk about the particularly great society achievements of of Lyndon Johnson, you're talking about the aftermath of the Goldwater disaster. And who knows, maybe there will be an analogous Trump or, or Cruz disaster this year, but you are again talking about these tremendous super majorities. And I'm not sure I really buy actually, particularly with Lyndon Johnson, that he Played the outside game that, that well. What was happening was someone else was playing the outside game, particularly the civil rights movement, in a genuinely tremendous and transformative way. And there is a lot of political science research at this point. It's very influential, at least in how I think about politics. It shows number one, that the presidential bully pulpit does much less persuading than, than people want to believe it does. That it is actually a strange hobby for people to tune into a lot of presidential speeches and statements. That most people don't do it. Speeches very rarely move public opinion. When they do, they don't move it very far. But that even worse, what they really do when the president takes a stance on an issue is it mobilizes the other party against him. There's this great research from Francis Lee out of University of Maryland showing that when the president takes a position even on a non-controversial issue, it sharply increases the chances of a party line vote. So in that world, what are the really specific things that you think a Sanders could do differently that an Obama didn't do, that a George W. Bush wasn't able to to do that if Bill Clinton wasn't able to do, because these are all very talented politicians in their ways. And some of them, particularly Obama, came in with tremendous organizing behind them and a, a real background in, in organizing.
3: Well, Obama did not do. The key failure in terms of organizing was to take his this incredible organization he had to be elected and make it into a grassroots organization that would support him, would have a degree of its own autonomy. He took all of that, the lists, the emails, everything, he took it into the White House and made it essentially the core of his organization to be re-elected in 2012. That's understandable, that's rational, but that dissipates the organizational potential of an incredible campaign in 2008. You're right about LBJ, but I think that you minimize the coordination between LBJ and Martin Luther King Jr. and the civil rights movement. There was a great deal of it in terms of passing the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act and maintaining just the degree of pressure that was critically important for getting those pieces of legislation through, particularly with regard to southern senators. Bill Clinton was good at the bully pulpit, but what we're talking about, Ezra, transcends simply making good speeches. I agree with you. A a good speech is a good, you know, that may last in the public's mind for about uh, 12 hours maximum. No, what we're really talking about is organizing and the organizational potential that a, a win of the sort that Obama had in 2008 could have given him. Or let me give you another example. Bill Clinton signed... In two thousand six, a welfare reform bill that I thought was horrendous. I, I thought that it it really was very punitive. It was the second or third bill that had been set up by the Republicans. Bill Clinton's political people thought he had to sign it because he had promised to end welfare as we know it uh, when he was elected in nineteen ninety two. And here we he was facing the ninety six elections. Could he have stood out and waited and and held out for a better? Republican bill, yes, I think he could have. The civil rights organizations, the poor people's organizations, the other organizations that could have been summoned to back that kind of strategy were not summoned. They were not present. I remember the day he made his decision. He had a cabinet meeting. He asked us all what we thought. Many of us thought he should not sign it. And it was well known in the press that that was the day he was making the decision. I was so disconsolate after he decided, and I was sure he decided to sign the Republican bill, that I walked back from the White House back to the Labor Department, Long Pennsylvania Avenue. And the thing that struck me most was the absence of anybody on the street protesting or any anybody. I mean, it was it was as if it was like any other day, and yet it was well known that he was making this decision. The silence was deafening in terms of the organized public that could have been there that wasn't there. And that's the problem. We are in an era in which the counterva- the forces of countervailing power that I mentioned before have been dissipated. A president, whether in the unlikely event that Bernie Sanders becomes president, one of his major jobs has got to do or any progressive voice has got to be to to facilitate and organize and provide the basis for a new countervailing power in America. And the absence, I think, is makes it very difficult for any progressive president to get anything done, even if we didn't have the polarization in Congress. That's a
1: good setup for the second part of the question, which is the first part was what if Bernie Sanders wins? And the second is what if he loses? So- Sanders has created a tremendous amount of excitement. He has created a, a genuine movement around his candidacy, which is something you really don't see that often in American politics. You saw it with Obama, but there are not that many other recent examples of of the size of what uh, size and persistence of what Sanders has accomplished. If he does not win the Democratic nomination, what should he do next? What should that movement do next? Changing the system often doesn't happen the first time you run for president. And so what is the next step if this is going to be a a more than one campaign
3: and done effort? Well, I don't think the Bernie Sanders campaign was ever about Bernie Sanders per se. I think it was about a movement that he has channeled and to an extent personified, but that movement would have been there if Elizabeth Warren had run for president. It would have been there really if any progressive leader had taken on that mantle. And I think that if Bernie Sanders doesn't win the nomination or doesn't become president, he is very well positioned to enlarge that movement, to focus it not only on the presidential election of 2020, but also on state and local elections, to do what the occupy movement never did and that was to become a political force in america and i think that bernie sanders could do it in a way that is very different from obama o- obama when obama was elected he was the focus of of that organization that he created he was almost a, a messianic like figure bernie sanders I want to say this again in a slightly different way. It's not that people are filling stadiums or young people are excited because of his personality or his charm or his youthful vigor and great looks. It's not because he of who Bernie Sanders is. It's because the ideas that he is emanating the message that he stands for. That's what's exciting people. And that's why there is a good chance that he can keep this movement going and grow the movement, even if he doesn't become the next president.
1: What do you think specifically should be the deliverable is the wrong word, the target of that movement next? So let's say that that he does not win the nomination and, and he comes to you and he says, Bob, I want to keep this going, but I need we we need something that it's going to be focused on, right? Because the movement needs something to organize around. Is it down ballot candidates? Is it moving antitrust? I mean, what what would you say is the the thing that a movement should take on as its first step? Getting
3: big money out of politics. I mean, this is and how does it? Do this that? is the fundamental. This is the original sin here. This is this is why the system has gone so off track. It's the combination of concentrated income and wealth with political power through this vast system of money in politics. Now, you and I talked before, Ezra, you're you're a little bit more skeptical than I am that money is the root of all evil here. And it's not the root of all evil, but it is a huge problem. Now where do you begin? Well, for one thing, full disclosure of exactly who is contributing every dollar to every candidate or against every other candidate. Number Two, public financing of elections at the state level at the federal level, maybe with a small checkoff, maybe uh, on you know federal dollars or state dollars on a matching basis for small contributions. Number three, you have to have a strategy for overturning uh, citizens united, and it may be that the key there is the next Supreme Court justice. It may very well be, but i 'm a skeptic when it comes to a constitutional convention, I don't think that that's the right way to go. And I I think it's also very, very difficult to amend the constitution generally, and it should be difficult to amend the constitution. But I think that the fifth Supreme Court justice is a very, very central part of that strategy. So I think the movement has got to take on the nexus between money and power, between this concentrated great wealth and the
1: corruption of our political system. So let me ask you a couple rapid questions that we ask guests here. Thank you so much for spending so much time here. It's been a great conversation. What is one thing that you believe that most people think is false?
3: (laughs) Well, I think most people believe that there really is a fundamental choice between the free market and the government. I think that's wrong. I think the big choice is whether we have a government that's working for most people or a government that's working for a privileged and powerful elite and that uh, you can't separate the free market from the government because government is making the rules by which the market is organized. Uh, That's, to me, a huge mistake that the public, in its normal ways of thinking, ideologically, has made. What are three books that have influenced you greatly that you think more people should read? Adam Smith's Theory of Moral Sentiments. 18th century book that he thought was much better than The Wealth of Nations, by the way. Uh, That is a very important book. I think that uh, John Kenneth Galbraith's early book, uh, The Affluent Society, or maybe American Capitalism, The Concept of Countervailing Power, is also very important. Thorstein Veblen, his theory of the leisure class is also a very very important book that a kind of turning point in terms of political economy and sociology. I would say those you know just, just randomly I take those 3.
1: The American Capitalism by by Galbraith is a phenomenal book. That that influenced me a lot when I when I read it the first time.
3: It's a it's a great book and uh, he was uh, personally a dear friend and a great mentor. Oh, I did not realize you knew him. I'd, what was he like as a person? Well, <laughs> very tall, about 6 foot 7. I'm very short. We'd walk along the streets of Cambridge talking, Cambridge, Massachusetts, and, and people would point to us. Did you all have directly. like little
1: cups with a wire between them? I mean,
3: how did you- <laughs> That's right. We, we had to talk very loudly. He had a extraordinary memory. I mean, he could remember details from 30 or 40 or 50 years before. And he was very funny, very playful,
1: and a very, very good friend. It seems to me, and economists I think have written about this, that in that period, in the period when when he was alive and influential, he was in many ways considered the counterpart to Milton Friedman, and it often seemed that certainly in the eyes of the economics profession, Milton Friedman's work ended up dominant. It got you know formalized by more mathematically inclined economists, and it became, I think, quite foundational. And Galbraith's work, really, from what I can tell from a lot of economists, fell into some level of disrepute. Do you think that that was wrong or that what Galbraith was doing just was somewhat different than what the economics profession was doing? How do you think about the way in which his academic reputation has changed or receded?
3: Well, Galbraith was— not doing mathematical economics, Uh, he scorned the direction that the economics profession was moving in because he felt that the mathematical models really did not adequately or could not adequately portray the set of institutions and sociological phenomena that really underlie economics. Galbraith was part of a tradition of economics, institutional economics, that really never dominated the economics profession, but was very, very important. He looked to the social reality. Uh, He was as much of a sociologist and a political scientist as he was an economist. And And I think he was one of the people, one of the reasons I was so influenced by him is because you can't really understand economics without understanding sociology. And you can't really understand either of them without understanding our political culture. The three disciplines are interwoven, and they are interwoven in law as well. I mean, the study of law without the study of economics or sociology or or politics is devoid of any meaning. If I had to do it all over again, or I had the power institutionally and and academically, I would create a curriculum based upon these four pillars that integrated all four of them so that people could see the reality and history, could see the how... Politics, economics, sociology, and law have evolved as the structure of the economy, the structure of politics has changed. Let me end on on this
1: question. You obviously do much work in that vein, in that tradition. Do you think that there are young academics, economists or not, or just thinkers who are doing work that is within that tradition now? And, and, And if so, who are they? Who should people who want to see this kind of analysis done on today's society look to?
3: Well, there are not many. Uh, I think to to get tenure in, for example, an economics department, you've got to be quite mathematically oriented, or even in a political science department these days, or a, sociolo- a sociology department. And it's too bad. It's very reductionist. Brad DeLong, younger than I am, certainly uh, a economist, is doing interesting work. Uh, Thomas Piketty, Emmanuel Sayes, doing very, very important work. Jacob Hacker, a political uh, scientist, and his colleague uh, research colleague and writer Paul Pearson who's here at the University of California Berkeley and other political scientists a very very important important work on all of this looking at power structures. A lot of political scientists want to pretend that power is not a subject of political science. Absurdly. I mean can you I mean if power is it should be studied by anybody it should be studied by a political scientists. Martin Gillens at Princeton is doing some very good work. He is a political another political scientist. So there are a lot of a lot of people around but young people who are not yet tenured who are who are In academic departments, there is a sad dearth of the kind of thinking represented by 50 years ago, John Kenneth Galbraith.
1: I'll just note that Jacob Hacker and Paul Pearson just came out with a book that looks very, very good called American Amnesia that I've been looking for an opportunity to. uh, I haven't finished it yet, but it's good so far and people should read it. And I've been wanting to recommend it. And you gave me a great opening to do so. Robert Reich, thank you so much. Thank you for the time. It's been really, really great to talk to you.
3: Well, thank you, Ezra.
1: That was Bob Reich. Thank you so much to him for the time he spent with me. Uh, Thank you all to you for for tuning in to my producer, AC Valdez. This has been another fun episode of The Ezra Klein Show, a Vox.com podcast on the Panoply Network, and we'll see you next week.